Andy Stanley wrote a book to defend controversial statements he made about unhitching the Christian church from the Old Testament. In his opening chapter, he says this, While many of us have been working hard, trying to make the church more interesting, it turns out that fewer people are actually interested. And while most of those outside of church have a favorable view of Jesus, they do not have a favorable view of his body, the church, and that's a problem. It's obviously very important to Stanley that the local church makes itself interesting to an unbelieving world. A similar mentality was actually recently expressed at the end of last year, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest denomination in the country, had a convention that they do every year to debate and discuss the future of where their convention is going. And apparently at the convention, there was this repeated mantra, the world is watching us. And this led a Southern Baptist pastor named Tom Askell to write this. There were two types of Southern Baptists in the convention hall. Those who repeatedly reminded us from the platform that the world is watching us versus those who were more concerned that God was watching us. It is an unfortunate reality how many Christians are far too interested in currying favor with the world. Oftentimes Christians are too interested in sort of getting a seat at the world's table, getting recognition and fame from unbelieving counterparts. And this lust for fame oftentimes leads them, requires them, to greatly compromise the faith. There's actually a saying that people will sometimes throw around to describe a Christian when they think he or she is doing that. And they say something like, that Christian has made a deal with the world. And the deal sounds like this. If you call me a scholar, I won't call you a heretic. Make no mistake about it. This is a sad reality. And our text today sheds light on the folly of trying to curry favor from Philistines. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 29, please? 1 Samuel chapter 29. We will read the chapter together, so if you would please follow along with me in verse 1, for these are the very words of God. 1 Samuel 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the, Lord of, the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Ashish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Ashish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not da of this David of whom they sang to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Asius called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out 
and in, forgive me, that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Ashish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Ashish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in the sight, in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. As we saw last week in chapter 28 and really the week before in chapter 27, the Philistines are preparing to engage in war with Israel. And we, last week we saw Saul, Saul was terrified of this sight. And so David, who was made Ashish's bodyguard, is obviously in the back of the army where the king would be, and he is protecting him with his men. But the Philistine leaders, so these would have been, in, in, in the land of Israel, there were multiple cities, and Gath was the capital city, which is why the king dwelled there. But they had many other cities who had their own lords, and so that's who this is referring to. The lords, the leaders of Israel, are all in the back together, and they notice that David has his Hebrew bodyguards with him, and they are not okay with this. They're not comfortable with this. They just don't trust him. And so they force Ashish to send home his friend reluctantly. But let's not make any mistake about it. This is a huge blessing to David. God in his providence has blessed David. I know he acts upset in the text. And it's possible that he is maybe concerned as to why the Philistines are onto him. But generally speaking, there is no reason to believe that David was actually disappointed in this. He does not want to go to war. And let me tell you why. Because David going to war, he would never actually fight against Israel. He has no intentions to actually fight against Israel. He's not a traitor. He's let the Philistines think he's a traitor, but he has not been a traitor. While he was in Ziklag, he had plenty of opportunities to do what he was telling Asia she was doing, which was attacking Israel and her allies. But what he was actually doing was not taking that opportunity to do so, and he continued to fight against Israel's enemies. And additionally, when David discusses going to war two times, he discusses with Ashish going to war. And in both times, he does lead you on to think he wants to fight against Israel. But if you look carefully at what he says, you can tell he's being intentionally ambiguous. So he wants to, to make it seem like he's going to fight, but we know he has no interest in that. Let me show you those two examples. Look back at chapter 28 and look at verse 2. 28 verse 2. After Aetius tells him he's going to have to go to war with them soon, David says this, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Aetius said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So David gives the impression he's going to war, but what exactly does that expression mean? Very well, you shall see what I'm capable of. If he were to go to war and turn against the Philistines and slaughter a great multitude of them, this would still be true. Look, we have seen what David is capable of. This is not admission that he's going to fight against Israel. He just very ambiguously and vaguely says, I'll go to war and then you'll see who I truly am. You'll see what I'm truly capable of. That is not a promise to fight against Israel. Although he makes it seem like that. And then he does it again in our text. If you will look at verse 8 of chapter 29. 
after being asked to leave, David said to Asius, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? So here David has promised, I'm interested in fighting against the enemies of my king. Who's David's actual king? Saul. If David were to go to battle and betray the Philistines, he would actually be honoring his word here. David has relied on ambiguity and being unclear to keep up his persona, but we have no reason to assume he actually wants to kill Israelites. Now, David has been lying about this for over a year, so also keep in mind that if he were to go and fight against the Philistines, this would out him as a liar. It would out him as a liar, but he has no interest to attack his nation. So what's he going to do? Because keep in mind, it's a lose-lose situation because he's not actually necessarily excited to go to war and betray the Philistines either. You can tell from the last few chapters that I think David has grown relatively close to Ashish. And remember, Ashish was the one who was kind enough to David to let David stay in Israel before he had evidence of who David was. He was kind enough to take on his enemy and house him, and they've grown, grown very, very close. So I don't think David is necessarily, he know, we know he's not going to go fight against Israel, but I don't think he's that excited to betray Ashish and to out himself as a liar. So no matter what David does in battle, it's lose-lose. It's going to be very, very hard on him. And this is why the Lord, out of his abundant mercy and his wise providence, saves David from having to make this difficult decision. David doesn't have to choose who he's going to betray because God has removed him from the battle at the last moment. And by the way, God could have removed him a lot earlier and not, you know, allowed for so much anxiety in David's life. But God loves to do this with his people. Scripture abounds with examples of God waiting to the last moment to save his people. One, one pastor noted this, saying that the Lord does this because the Lord loves what happens to us when we learn to trust him in tight spots. Trust learned there is a lesson long remembered. And so what this ought to do is it ought to remind us of how often God protects us from calamity and we don't even know it. We don't even realize it. How many total times in your life, give me the exact total number, how many total times has God led you away from danger or protected you from disaster? And the true answer is you'll probably never know. You'll probably never know. And this should give us, we just recited the Lord's Prayer, this should give us a whole new appreciation of our request in the Lord's Prayer for God to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's what he did to David, and he does it to us. But we have discussed God's providence at length throughout our sermon series in 1 Samuel. We've, we've talked about it a lot. And so while this is amazing providence that we can glorify God in, I would like us to examine something a little bit more central to the narrative. And that is the Philistines' rejection of David. What can we possibly learn from the Philistines sending David away? And this is what I've determined. This is what I would say is the main idea of the sermon. You must live to please God and not to please men. You must live to please God and not to please men. Now, I'm not accusing David of doing that, but I think it's a lesson we learned from him in this situation. David has been incredibly shrewd for the past year while living among the Philistines. 
He's convinced Aishish that he has compromised on his religion, compromised against his nation when he actually has not done anything of the sort. So because of this, Aishish now loves David. Because he thinks David is a compromiser, because he thinks he's a traitor, that's why he loves him. He's my friend, not my enemy. And so it reminds us, Aishish falling in love with David, it reminds us the world will not love you unless they think you're compromising. The world has no interest in you unless they think you're giving up your faith. The more and more the world thinks you're giving up Christianity, the more they will embrace you. The only way for a Christian to be beloved by the world is to be a really bad Christian. Or at least to make them think you're a really bad Christian. But it gets even worse. Because the text is also an example, not just the fact that the world embraces us when we compromise, but that for many in the world, even our compromise will never be enough for them. Is it not interesting that David was dismissed without any evidence that he has been unfaithful to Philistia? The king himself appeals to this, telling the leaders that David has been valiant and faithful for over a year. And yet not even that was enough to affirm David. In fact, think of all the things that were not able to turn the hearts of the Philistines toward David. He had the backing of the king. He lived in Philistia for over a year with no incidents. And yet none of this won him any favor among most of the leaders. and, And you could argue, well, I mean, he wasn't actually doing these things. He was actually being a bad guy. But they don't know that. For all they know, Aishish's word is true, and they still want nothing to do with David. And they, remember, they quote the song that was sung after David killed their great hero, Goliath. Here's the only things they know about David. They know what he's capable of, and they know who he is. He's a Hebrew, and he used to be our enemy. No glorious track record after that changed their hearts at all. They they don't care about what David may have done the last year and four months. They care about who he is. He's a Hebrew. And as long as he's a Hebrew, we can't trust him. And so that should demonstrate for all of us that the world is insatiable. None of our compromises will ultimately satisfy a world whose craving against Christianity is insatiable. As long as the world thinks that you are authentically a Christian, as long as they think that you have an agenda to convert them, they will not accept you even if you compromise certain parts of your faith to appease them. You can compromise and offend God and they will still send you packing in the end. This is why it is truly a fool's errand to make appeasing the world the ultimate goal of your Christian life. And Paul knew this, which is why Paul told Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. The world is not that interested in your righteousness. They're interested in your spiritual destruction. Persecution is inevitable and compromising won't ultimately save you. Therefore, you are much better off living your life to please God rather than trying to please insatiable men. However, we do need to qualify this. This does have a qualification before we can conclude. It's important that you can see currying favor of the world is possible. 
So just to make sure that I don't confuse anybody, I, I want to show how the Bible sort of has two voices here and then show how it's not as contradictory as you might think. There are many places in Scripture that speak of winning favor with the world through our faithful Christian living. Let me just give you a few examples. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The early Christians who won many converts in the early church, and this is what was said of them. They gained favor with men. Acts 2.42 describes them as, quote, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In fact, one of the qualifications for elders, like if we were to seek to add elders to our church, one of their qualifications is this. He must be well thought of by outsiders. So how do we reconcile this with what we've already seen? That those who are trying to be righteous will be persecuted with these other voices in Scripture about how sometimes being righteous will earn you favor. Think of it like this. We ought to seek God's favor with a hopeful expectation that it will win favor with the world. We seek God, we seek pleasing God, we seek honoring God, and we can have a hopeful expectation that this will in fact appease and make the world happy with us. This is a different approach than actively seeking the world's favor, right? You can try to seek the world's favor and you will crash and burn, or you will try to seek God's favor and sometimes it will work with the world. Do you see the nuance, but the important difference between those two? I think to help, I think the Apostle Peter really explains this well. Uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. Past Paul's epistles, past Hebrews, you get to 1 Peter. Chapter 3, we're going to read verses 13 through 17. Peter says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So notice the rhetorical question that Peter opens up with in verse 13. He says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is rhetorical. So he begins by saying, if you do good, you should expect people are going to respond well to that. If you treat your neighbors kindly, you treat them with love and gentleness and respect, you lay down your life for them, you sacrifice for them, generally speaking, that's not going to make them hate you, it's going to make them like you. But after that one little rhetorical question, he immediately shifts to, but this won't always happen. Sometimes your righteousness will actually make them hate you more, and then he goes on to explain, here's how you deal with that. You continue in righteousness, you don't compromise. You don't give up. You don't give them what they want. You just trust yourself to the Lord. Believe that this is the Lord's will and you keep up in righteousness. So Peter puts these things together. Point number one, do good and expect. The world's going to respond well to that. But don't be surprised if they don't. And here's what you do when they don't. So Peter doesn't think these things are contradictory. Peter knows that, yeah, sometimes your righteousness will win favor with the world. And when it does, praise God. But oftentimes it won't. 
And so that's why our ultimate affection is not in pleasing the world. That's a secondary blessing. Our ultimate affection needs to be for pleasing God. You live righteously, you pursue God, and maybe it will win favor with the world, but maybe it won't. But as long as winning favor with the world is the most important thing in your heart, that will fail you. You can compromise and compromise and compromise and try to make as many friends as you want, but at the end of the day, you are a Christian with an agenda, and they know that. They know that. By the way, isn't the Lord Jesus the greatest example of these two principles? Jesus is our greatest example. He is the most loving and good person to ever exist. And this got two very different responses. On the one hand, Jesus was a beloved man. He had devoted followers who loved him and served him and believed in him. And even now to this day, through the work of his spirit, he is converting millions of people because they have a written, a written testimony to his goodness. People are still reading Jesus and saying, I love this man. Jesus was so good and so kind and so righteous that lots of people fell in love with him. But we know that's only half the story. A lot of people hated him, despised him, so much so that they tortured him to death. And how many people around the world today still hate him and still despise him? And we know that for all of the people who hate Jesus and want to kill Jesus, none of it can be blamed on Jesus because he's perfect. So no fault of his own, he got crucified. And so this is the kind of dual tension we also live in. Just because someone hates you doesn't mean you've done something wrong. If they hate you for righteousness sake, what does Peter say? Glory to God. You pursue righteousness, you pursue God, and sometimes that will make you popular, and sometimes it will make you hated. And you need to learn how to handle both situations, but what's your ultimate aim, your ultimate focus? It's not the world. It's not the people falling in love with you. Jesus, by the way, himself told us about this. So two of the really famous verses from him. John 15, 8. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Mark 13, 13. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus was very much aware that those who love Jesus and follow him will ultimately be hated because people hate Jesus. And since they can't get to Jesus, they go to the closest thing to him, you. People will oftentimes hate you because of Jesus. And sometimes they will love you because of Jesus. You can't control that part, so you shouldn't worry about that part. Because we do not know how the world will react to our righteousness, we must not use the world as our standard for faith. We must be driven by the world's approval, but instead we must seek the Lord's approval and expect it to put us in good standing with men while remaining unsurprised if it doesn't. So in conclusion, fear God. Do not fear men. As James tells us in his epistle, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do not desire friendship with the world. Instead, desire to be friends with God. All the while hanging on to hope that your righteous deeds will win you favor with your neighbor.